I'm Joanne from Riverside's National Theatre of Parramatta, and I'm so excited to be able to bring our very first episode of Staging the Nation to you. Before we get started, I'm going to introduce you to Dino Dimitriadis, our host of the series. Dino is a creative producer and director. They are fearless, ambitious and inclusive. Dino champions auteurs, misfits, queers, the forgotten and the marginalised, so is absolutely perfect for this series. Some of Dino's award-winning productions include Angels in America and Metamorphoses. For us here at National Theatre of Parramatta, we were thrilled that Dino was able to direct The Girl, The Woman and Lady Tabuli in this year's Sydney Festival. So I really hope you'll enjoy the series. Joining Dino for our first episode is the insanely talented Paul Capsis. How do we tell the complex stories of migrant families? How does an artist write and perform autobiographical theatre? Welcome to Staging the Nation. As we stand in the complicated present, we look back through the contemporary Australian canon and we'll be shining a light on some of the writers and works that have grappled with the big questions of who we are as a nation and the complexity of representing marginalised and underrepresented experiences. I'm Dino Dimitriadis, your host for the series, and over the next year I'll be speaking with some of Australia's leading playwrights and theatre artists. I'd like to acknowledge the Darug people where we record this podcast today, and I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connection to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Our first guest is the incomparable national treasure, also known as Paul Capsis, and we'll be talking about Paul's play, Angela's Kitchen. In 1948, Angela left Malta, her destination, Australia. In Surrey Hills, she could build a bright new life. Paul Capsis's evocative and beautifully staged piece of autobiographical theatre was the smash hit of 2010. Paul is one of Australia's most versatile performers and his extensive career has included theatre, live concerts, cabaret, film and television. Paul has worked with many leading Australian theatre companies as well as in Vienna, Hong Kong, London, Edinburgh and New York. Paul's theatre credits include Barry Kosky's The Lost Echo, which earned him the 2007 Helpman Award for Best Supporting Actor in a Play, Boulevard Delirium in Vienna and Australia with his Australian performance, earning him the 2006 Helpman Award for Best Contemporary Concert Performer and the 2006 Green Room Award for Best Cabaret Artiste. More recent theatre credits include Resident Alien, Black Rider, Cabaret, Rumpelstiltskin, Calpurnia Descending and Angela's Kitchen, which played at Griffin Theatre for which he won the 2012 Helpman Award for Best Male Actor. Paul has many TV and film credits, including Anna Kokinos' 1998 film Head On, which won him the 1998 Film Critics Circle Award for Best Supporting Actor and a nomination for an AFI award in the same category. Paul's other awards include the 2004 Green Room Award, Best Cabaret Artiste, and the 2002 Helpman Award for Best Live Musical Presentation for Capsus vs. Capsus at the Sydney Opera House. Welcome and thank you for joining us, Paul Capsus. Thank you, Dino. I'm exhausted. I just felt like 38 years flashed in front of my face. I'm thrilled to be here. 
This is very special to have you on this series today, uh, as well as being the first in our series. You and I know each other very well, but we've never actually sat down and talked about Angela's Kitchen. So I'm excited to delve into this play with you. I'm honoured to be here, do you know? Let's begin at the beginning and a question that niggles at me every time I see or, or hear about a new play, and that was the seed of the work. What made you decide to make Angela's Kitchen? Initially, I had a lot of resistance to it. When I was approached to do it by Professor Julian Merrick, I was doing the Rocky Horror Show in Melbourne, 2007, and I received a beautiful card with a stunning picture on the cover and inside a beautifully written note from Professor Merrick with the idea of doing a play about my maternal Maltese grandmother. He had in the letter the idea of it not just being about her, but about my connection to her, to my grandmother Angela, and to her island home of Malta. It was about migration. It was about generations of Maltese Australians or Maltese leaving mm. Malta to come to Australia after the Second World War and my connection to Malta. And what made you say yes? In the end, I, my first reaction was no because I mm. felt it was too soon after her passing that I just couldn't even fathom the idea of talking about her in public just because I mm. – of my well, she was my – I should explain my grandmother was my parent. Angela, my Maltese grandmother, was my mm. parent. She raised me. I lived in her house with my mother, Mary, and my older brother, Manuel, with my grandfather, Lance. So we were in their house. I was six months old when I went to live there after my mother and father, my Greek father, Chris Capsis, they split up in 1964, six months after I was born. Mm. So I lived with my grandmother right up until I was 20. And I remained very close to her. Julian, Professor Merrick, met my grandmother around, well, I think it was the 80s. There were a few years where he stayed in my place in Surrey Hills and I was in Melbourne doing some theatre there and so there was a thing we had to do with the keys. So he, mm. he had to uh, collect the keys to my home from my grandmother, Angela. And a few times he went over there and she invited him in and, and Julian talked about his father who was in the Second World War and who was stationed in Malta. And she started telling Julian about the war in Malta and the Second World War and life in Malta and coming to Australia. So he had a connection with her. He'd met her and he had a connection with her. That was a big part of why I said yes. And the other part why I said yes was the polit politics of it. When I said no, it was, because of, it was because it was personal and it was emotional. But as time passed and the more I thought about it, the more politicised I was about my decision. I just thought I want to, I want to tell the story because I want the story about migration. I want the story about Maltese leaving the island of Malta, the country of Malta, to come to Australia and taking the risk of coming to this country that they did not speak the language, 
the culture was very different in Malta, to make a new life. And I just felt at that stage there was this kind of lie about the Australian, about Australia's history and the migrant experience. We were kind of relegated to the sidelines. Mm. As an actor, I felt that acutely as a performer all my life, all my working life as an Australian performer. Although I was born in Australia, I grew up very much in the Greek, because my father's Greek, I grew, I grew up with a Maltese Greek cultural bubble. The only way I came outside of that bubble was when I started to go to school. And I didn't even know I was Australian until I went to school. I didn't understand most people, what they were saying, because I always heard different languages. I heard Maltese, I heard Greek. And because of that way I felt as a performer, I was, I was activated to say yes for that reason primarily. That really, I have to honestly tell you, that was the main reason I said to Julian, yes. So Julian comes to you with this idea and we should acknowledge yeah. Julian and also Hilary Bell who yes. worked on Angela's Kitchen. He comes to you with this idea, you say yes, it's a very personal story. Where do you start? How do you begin to unpack what you're going to put on the stage? I started with trust because mm. had I not trusted Julian, had Julian not met my grandmother perhaps, I had a long history with Julian. I should, I should also mention that my history with Julian goes back to around 1987 when I met him. I was sort of starting out, I would just, I'd just been with Shopfront Theatre for five years and then I left Shopfront and I was 23 years old and I wanted to, I wanted to experience the adult world of theatre. I wanted to be a professional performer, actor, mostly actor in those early days. And I knew Hilary Bell from Shopfront Theatre and Hilary Bell wrote this fantastic Australian musical called A Pocket Full of Hula Dreams. And I played multiple characters. I played the nerd Stavros. <laughs> I played his yaya, his grandmother. <laughs> and I played Waiki Aloha, the patron saint of surfing. <laughs> it was a musical. It starred Hilary Bell and myself. Uh, sorry, Lucy Bell, I should say. Lucy Bell is a performer singer. So we were doing this little cabaret show in nooks and crannies in the middle of Sydney City. And Julian Merrick became friendly with our director, David Foster. So David Foster was our producer-director for Pocketful of Hula Dreams and he met Julian literally off the boat, I think, from England. So Julian was born and raised in England. His mother is Australian and his father died when he was young, a teenager. So he migrated to Australia in the 80s and he, started, he wanted to create and start a theatre company and precisely to do Australian work, that was the emphasis. He didn't, at that time, he wasn't interested in doing any repertoire that was from Europe or America. He wanted to do Australian. And so David uh, invited Julian to this performance of um, A Pocket Full of Hula Dreams. I think we were performing in a, ca a tiny little cabaret room called Pastels was buried deep in the heart of the city near Martin Place and the, the Theatre Royal. 
and Julian came and he saw the, saw the show. And then afterwards he came up to me and he said, and I'll never forget this, he said, hello, Paul. He's got a very strong mm-hmm. accent. He said to me, I'm looking for male performers for it to start a theatre company and I I think you're a I think you're a, a you're a character actor. Hmm. And I think you should be in my company. And I just well I've been with Shopfront Theatre and which in Shopfront Theatre I I performed you know uh, works of theatre that we created us young people and also we did Godot, we did Beck, so we did Beckett, we did Shakespeare and we did some classics and mixed it up. And by then I knew I wanted to be in the theatre because I was in love with the community of the theatre and ex- the acceptance of the theatre and the diversity of the theatre. So I said yes to Julian and he had a company called Kickhouse Theatre, which was at the beginning we performed in Sydney and then we performed in Melbourne. And I worked with Julian and Kickhouse over about, I, I guess it would be five years, and we did mostly Australian work and a lot of the work was uh, by playwright. Luke Devonish. We also branched out and did some Lorca, Federico Garcia Lorca, and we did some other classics. We did we did the Oresteia. So up until that point, I would say Julian was the most influential mm. director who I'd met at that point because of the way he created the work. It was intense. And from doing that work, it was very physically demanding work. And through that work, I met people like performer Louise Fox. And it opened up my world of the theatre. From then on, through Louise Fox, through Julian and David Foster and Hilary Bell, things started to grow. And then I met through Louise Fox, I met Michael Cantor and I met Barry Kosky you know, those doors mm. and those links, that's what I say to young people who are wanting to be in the industry of the theatre mm. is that, you know, that whole idea of never giving up because you meet those people along the way as you go. So Julian and I had that history. First of all, first of all, trust. I had the history with Julian. And then after those years of Kick House, I then went on into this world of cabaret and part of the thing when Julian approached me about Angela's Kitchen, he said to me, he said, you know how we worked all those years ago and I said to you, I see you as a character actor. He said, I still see you as a character actor. He said, I see you as a successful cabaret artist trapped inside the body of a character actor. Hmm. He said, so I would like to lure you back to the theatre and I'm not really interested in you singing in this piece. He also had spoken to the artistic director of, the, of then of Griffin, Nick Marchant, with that idea. And then Nick was excited about it and offered us a week to do a creative development. Also when Julian approached me, he said, really, I'm just going to say to you that this is just for a creative development at this stage because mm. of the nature of the material, that it's personal, that it's emotional, that it's difficult. You know, that when we do this development, at the end of it, if you find that it's been too hard, it's too, it's too much, you can say, mm. I do not want to take this further. 
Mm. So that was another thing on trust. That's great. Yeah. Okay. So then when we did the week, by now we're talking, I would say, a year and a half after his initial approach. And he put, he gave me a list of what he wanted from the week, which was for me to bring artifacts of my grandmother, belonging, things that belonged to her, my collection of Maltese paraphernalia from when I was a child that I still have to this day, photographs of my family. And I went to a office space in, in uh, Potts Point. So this was uh, under the Griffin banner, mm. Griffin Theatre, and uh, we did the week. And I was nervous but I was also scared because I knew I would have to talk about my grandmother. Mm. And you can see in the play how those photographs and those objects are so central to what you've built. And there's these lovely moments for those who saw the production but also embedded in the writing of the play. Photographs, photographs, photographs. You can, you know, suitcases, what's in the kitchen, what's at the table. Yeah. Uh, it's such a rich part of, of what this play is about. So you go into this week and you're, you're mining these stories, you're, you're, you're going back, you're, you're, you're thinking, you're sharing. Did it start to become clear what the shape of this could be or was it still this open beast? I think for Julian it was. I think he had it worked mm. out in terms of how he was creating the material because he recorded absolutely everything every day. He had a number of exercises he had me do. He had a various things. There was a meditation, close your eyes. The first time you go to Malta, what was the first thing you saw when you arrived at the airport or before you even landed? And it was extraordinary because I closed my eyes and I was able to recall my first trip to Malta in 1986, as well as I had photographs. And that's the first scene of the, made it to the first scene of the play. And that was the first scene of the play. Mm. I'm looking into the sky, the blue, blue, clear, malty sky. And there's Baluta Bay. So that was from these meditations. The scene around the kitchen table was an improvised moment. I, rec I think it was day three. Julian said, okay, what we're going to do now, we're going to have a table. I want you to be every person at the table. What was your typical Sunday Maltese post-church scenario? I want you to have a think about where your mother would sit. And we all did sit in our places. And he said, then I what I want you to do, just have a conversation between everybody. Be your grandmother, be your grandfather, be your mother, be your auntie, be your brother, be yourself. And you have the chairs 
Where were they sitting? What were some of the things on the table? And you know that improvisation was what ended up in the play mm. intact from the initial improvisation that I did in 2008 or 20, 2009 possibly and right up until the very last performance in 2017 in Malta. Because it was completely authentic. Yeah. And it got the biggest reaction mm. because of the hysteria and the kinds of personalities around that table. Mm. So this takes me on to something I've always wanted to ask you about this work and it's to do with having to perform autobiography. What came with Julian's offer to make the piece is not only the invitation and support to mine your personal story, but the invitation to actually perform the work. What's that like to take that on, to sit somewhere between Paul and the spirit of Angela? Initially, I, I, I couldn't imagine how I was going to do it, really. But then it just happened kind of organically. Mm. And also, the, again, I go back to the way Julian set it up. I'm probably jumping ahead here, but, uh, of course, at the end of that week, Julian had a transcript that was uh, horrified me. I went, oh, how on, you know, he literally mm. <laughs> yeah. typed every single word that I said in that week. All the improvisations, all the meditations, all the stories. And from that massive document, he, over the course of, I guess, several years, he went through it. Mm. Where's the theatre in the, you know, what parts of this that we can keep as a play. And also he did say to me, if there is anything that you feel uncomfortable saying on stage about your family, about Angela, about you, you must let us know and if you don't want to do it, we won't. And then, of course, when, when this transcript was, you know, further shaped, there were things I just couldn't and wouldn't say, but there, were, there was a lot that I did. The difficulty for me, I think, was, well, first of all, I had to learn it, mm. you know, and then I had to perform it. And that was two separate, very separate things. Hilary Bell came in to help with the making, of, making it a play. So putting together the parts that kept the piece moving. So Julian, of course, did his own research about the history of Malta. So in conjunction with my story about my, my Maltese grandmother living through the Second World War, my mother being born during an air raid, Julian went away and did his research with figures and data about, you know, what actually was going on in Malta. And that was also researching film, photography, and Louisa McCarty, our designer, was also, she was with us also through that creative development, by the way. So she was watching. Mm. And, absorbing. And absorbing and watching me use my grandmother's actual things, 
her actual crocheted mm. blanket and her glasses, her jumper and all those things, they were really her things. And so I, I obviously had moments in that development where I was overcome with emotion because of my grandmother had, having passed. But then by the end of that week, I also felt very light. Mm. I was going through a lot with my family at the time and it helped me actually. It brought back some kind of joy and reconnection to my grandmother. The happy things, the, the, the wonderful things about her, which, you know, under the difficulty of what was going on in my family, it really helped me get through it. So when I learnt the piece, so when, the, when we did, we did a number of con- ongoing developments and often I'd be in Julian's kitchen in Melbourne with Louise McCarty and with Hilary and me reading it out and them listening to me read it. And I remember breaking down a few times and then that just kept, those developments kept happening, but, you know, over periods of like six months, seven months, eight months. And then when when it came time, when, of course, by, by now we have a play and Griffin have programmed it for a season in 2010, the difficulty for me was the learning, was learning those long meditative, descriptive stories of place and my experience of Malta, my family history, Malta history, data. There's Maltese in the play. Emotion, Maltese in the play. That was like really hard. I mean, I I worked, I I performed one-person shows, cabaret Mm. shows. I've worked with Kosky doing solo work, physical, vocally, very challenging. But this was on a whole different level and obviously I'd not experienced that before. Mm. And then when I got, when I learned it and Julian was prepared for all of these outcomes, you know, he, he warned me. He said, once you have the technical, then be prepared for the emotional. Mm. Yeah. And he was right. Then it was really hard. Mm. Then it was Paul's breaking down again. Paul can't get through this bit. Can't speak. Yeah. This is in previews. Mm. It's interesting you talk about the connection to Malta because the piece quite cleverly has those three scenes that are postcard from Malta. It's the first scene of the play. The second is somewhere in the middle and then I think the the last one is the final scene of the play. That's right. And it does this thing beautifully where it explores your connection to Malta but also runs this parallel story of your family and this migration. I was thinking and you know that if there was if there was to be a fourth postcard from Malta it might be you taking the show to Malta which you did many years later. What was that like? Well, beyond anything I could ever imagine. Mm. It was, I gave up on that. I, I mean, we, there were was a lot of talk. A lot of Maltese, influential Maltese in Australia had seen the play in 2012 when it toured. 
in Canberra there was a diplomat who saw it and people were seriously like, this has to go to Malta. Mm. The Maltese need to hear the, so- the story from the Australian Maltese perspective. The, the, they need to hear about the side of the Maltese person who leaves their home to come to Australia. And so there were a couple of times where we almost got there and then something would happen. It happened to me twice and it was very distressing both times. And then lucky that Eran Berg, who was the artistic co-artistic director of the Schauspielhaus in Vienna with Barry Kosky, who I have an association with because I worked in Vienna in the early 2000s, Eran was given the role of creating the festival in Malta, the Malta International Festival in 2017. He had heard about this play that I created with Julian and Hilary. But, but the thing was, the theme of that festival was migration. Wow. That was the theme. So he had some difficulty trying to get me. He'd rung managers and stuff happened. And then I get a call one night around 11 p.m. And it's Iran. Iran, Paul, I've been trying to ring you for months. <laughs> I'm doing a festival about migration. I want your play about your grandmother in Malta. I want it, Paul. I went, Iran, you better not be joking because honestly, this will be the third attempt and I couldn't bear it if it didn't happen. So please, Iran, tell me you're being serious. And Iran, I knew Iran. Iran was not the type of person that would muck around with this kind of thing. He, when he, he said, we're going, we're going. Of course, over the months that followed, there was a coup in Turkey because Iran was living in Turkey with his wife and child. They were living in Turkey. There was a coup. And then there was the, some big financial crisis. And then, you know, the money was cut, that was going to the festival. So we almost didn't go, but we got there. In 2017, Julian, Louise, McCarty and I, with some of the set that existed from 2012, from the tour, in tatters, some of it, <laughs> and the original table, mm. the all the cutlery and all the little objects that were on top of the cupboard that created the skyline of Malta. The cupboard itself was made in Malta by carpenters. But then we did three shows. And I cannot tell you the difficulty of, for me to perform that work in Malta because of my grandmother being in her country, saying her words. Special. And the reaction from the Maltese. I didn't know what to think. I thought they're going to laugh at my bad Maltese. I don't, Mm. but they got it. They got it. I mean, for me, the highlight of my tour in 2012 was Parramatta Riverside Theatre when a lot of Maltese went to the theatre. That was my favourite season place to perform the show because it was exhilarating. The Maltese singing, talking, and in Malta it was the same, except I kept breaking down (laughs) all throughout the show. 
Every show, three shows. Mm. And then Julian and I made a pact. We'd never do it again. We'd leave Angela's kitchen in Malta. We left the set there. We left everything there. Do you still feel that way? I do. Mm. What I found, Dino, is the longer time went on, the more difficult the play. Okay, I was in Malta. Mm. So that was extra emotional and special to me. That was huge. It was the biggest moment of my whole career, 37 years, above anything else I'd ever done. With Kosky's Lost Echo, Boulevard Delirium, all those things. Because it was personal, because it was deeply connected and rooted to me, you know, and also because it went back to my childhood and how I was as a child, as an obsessed child about Malta, you know. And now you're here standing there, standing on that stage. It's unbelievable. Mm. It's beyond. I mean, Julian always said to me, you know, this piece isn't determined on age because it's, you can do this piece anytime, any point in your life as long as you can remember what you're saying. You know, I don't know, perhaps in the future I may change my mind. Mm. Yeah, it would depend. I, I, I was frustrated that in Melbourne we did a very short season. Melbourne, of all places in Australia, has the largest population of Maltese Australians in the country. So to do a very short two-week season is sold out in a blink mm. and the reaction was, you know, pretty amazing. But we didn't get the same, you know, like the busloads like Parramatta Riverside or Griffin. Yeah. All these Maltese people came to the theatre who hadn't gone, who'd not been to the theatre in their lives, some of them. I mean, it was one of the most draining, exhausting things I'd, I've ever experienced as a performer to the point where I, I was even considering maybe never performing again because of the emotion and the people that I would meet after the show and their stories. And they weren't just Maltese. They were Greek. They were Yugoslav. They were Italian. They were Russian. They were... Brazilian, they were Irish. But they felt seen in some way. They did, they mm. did. The, the responses, I had some odd responses some nights from Maltese. It was people who objected to my, you know, showing my family cleaning the floor or all the shouting that was Maltese people in my family were doing. You know, there were some odd responses like that sometimes. Mm. You know. Yeah, the piece doesn't shy away from the difficult. But what I also love about it is 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 how much you talk about growing up in Surrey Hills and Darlinghurst and you still live in Surrey Hills and, <laughs> and how much that part of the world shaped you. Indeed. Yeah. Well that's the that again, that's Julian. Mm. He wanted to really he wanted to sh to show what, what it was like for a Maltese family to be displaced into a place that was not welcoming, that was very strange to them, 
the language, the culture. They came because there was no work in Malta. People were starving post-Second World War. Malta was a British subject. Malta as a strategic position in the Mediterranean was part of the reason why the the war was won by the British because they were stationed there, which, you know, the uh, migration, I guess, of the war from Europe to Africa, it was, a you know, very strategic. And as a result of that, this, you know, the British being there, Malta was the most bombed place on earth in the Second World War, mm. which is in the play. There are many wonderful early Paul stories in the play. Uh, possibly my favourite is you accompanying Angela while she's cleaning and you discover as a young child that you can sing. How have you seen the Surrey Hills, Darlinghurst area change over the years? A great deal because when I was growing up mm. in Surrey Hills, I was born in Surrey Hills on Crown Street Women's Hospital, it was a working class, yeah. multicultural area. It was uh, rough. There were no trees. There were no cafes. There was no... It was really run down and rough when I was growing up, you know. Mm. Uh, the the big mix of different nationalities, Portuguese, a, a lot of Greeks, a lot of Italians, a lot of Maltese. I mean, for me as a kid who was obsessed with Malta, meeting all these people, these Maltese people, there were other kids who were like me who also had a very deep connection to their Maltese side uh, because I grew, I lived in my, my Maltese family's house in Surrey Hills. You know, on the weekend we'd go and see my dad's family in Bankstown, the Greek side, mm. which was very different. Bankstown was this shiny, bright place in the 60s, 70s and a bit of the 80s. It was this clean, very nice, bright place. But Surrey Hills was... You know, there was it had a reputation, and Redfern was a had a worse reputation. But it, Surrey Hills was a place that people didn't want to. Oh my God, you live in Surrey Hills. <laughs> you know, the schools I went to mm. were rough. Apart from the Catholic school, which was very protected by the nuns, when I went to Catholic uh, to public school because my mother couldn't afford the Catholic ch- school anymore, the shock to the system was enormous because it, it was just like I walked into some kind of chaotic mad world of madness, mm. you know. And, um, yeah, I have very vim- vivid memories of Surrey Hills. And then I saw I saw the rapid development, you know, through the 70s when the homosexuals moved in and they all started living in these houses and the houses all of a sudden started getting chic and nice and everything was painted, you know, salmon pink and <laughs> there was a lots of flannel, flannel everywhere and, you know, handlebar moustaches. <laughs> and I remember that and then I remember that change and then, you know, uh, other people started coming in. A lot of the migrants, I say migrants, I use that polite word, migrants left Surrey Hills to live in the big houses with the big backyard out west, you know, and I was sad about that because I felt that area started to change. We stayed there but a lot of my family moved out as well. My cousins, my aunties, my uncles moved west, a few stayed and then I saw the changes and then, because of my grandmother, I kept there because of her, mostly because of her and my mother, but to stay nearby and live in the suburb and then, of course, witness more change until it had become this 
very nice green, mm. you know, lovely cafes. Well, not so – now it's a whole different thing with COVID-19. There's this whole other thing happening now. But it became super glamorous. Yeah. Let's talk about Angela a little bit. Uh, you say in the play there were three big things for your grandmother, poverty, war and coming to Australia. And there's an incredible uh, description of that in the play where you say she got the first ever assisted passage. This is a photograph of the ship, 1948, and you show the photograph. She came with five children by herself with one suitcase, never even been on a ferry, terrified of water. Poverty, war, the journey to Australia, huge impact on Angela. What impact did that have on you, watching her go through that as a migrant? Well, I was very attached to her. Yeah. From, you know, the earliest memory, I was very attached to Angela and I hounded her for stories. I was one of those kids. I was a annoying, tell me that story again. I was trying to understand, <laughs> I was trying to understand mm. where she was from. I wanted to know her story. And when she gave me the very first image of Malta that I saw, it was a out of an, a rusty old tin. It was a black and white photo. It was a postcard in black and white. And I'll never forget, I was sitting at the kitchen table and my grandmother opened the tin and she was looking for some papers and she said, look, Paul, this is my home. This is Malta. And I looked at this picture and I saw an old building and a corotzin, which is the old uh, taxis of Malta, which was the horse-drawn uh, cart thing, of, you know, with drapes. And, and I just couldn't get my head around where she was from because I could see already in the photograph it was a very different place. I did the same thing to my Greek grandmother, by the way. It was mm -hmm. also, although she really wanted us to know her place, mm. so she was always showing us photographs of Egypt where, you know, here she is next to the pyramid, you know, <laughs> where my dad was born. Yeah. You know, she was a real... I think I probably get my archivist side from my yaya, from my Greek grandmother, because she really nurtured in me this obsession with photography, with the image, with place. So when my Maltese grandmother sh it produced this photograph, that started this obsession. And I hounded every family member, every anyone that came to the house, Anyone we visited, my mother took me to see a friend, if she was Maltese, do you have any pictures of Malta I could have? And they all gave me these photographs, which I still have. I still have all those postcards, pamphlets, calendars. And the more I got, the more obsessed I got with the place. Mm. Blue skies, interesting looking buildings. What I can tell you as a child born in Australia, I was not interested 
in any way, shape or form in Australia. Mm. The more I learnt about where my family were from on both sides, I was not interested in Australia. I didn't didn't care, didn't get it, didn't seem exciting, mm. didn't look interesting. But those places to me were, but they existed through image, through photographs, mm. and, and very rarely sometimes through the moving image, which was a film. And I don't know, I was just crazy. I couldn't get enough. And then I would imagine I was in Malta. I'd be walking around Surrey Hills thinking I was in Malta, pretending, so that I could... This hounding my grandmother mm. for stories, and not only that, but I also needed to be everywhere she went, so I would always follow her around. She'd have to take me to her job. She'd have to take, you know, I had to go with her and always asking her questions. And I, and I was a child and I realised later that for her probably these stories may have been difficult for her. Because I'd say to her, what was it like when you were a little girl? And shocked by those things that she's told me. And I couldn't understand. No water, no food, no clothes, no parents at home, multiple siblings. And I'm like a kid growing up in Australia. But the more I hounded her with these questions, the more I understood also her person, her, her personality, how in the 70s in Australia, when we opened the tap, we didn't know about depleting energies and climate change, none of those things. Do not waste the water, she would say. My grandfather, do not waste the electricity. Turn the light off. We didn't get it. But well, we did. We turned the light off and we, you know. From a lifetime of having to survive. So that, mm. I think, for me, was my grandmother's teaching me about the world, about life, about how bad things can be, mm. what you sometimes what humans have had to go through. Then I wanted to know everything about the war. What do you mean there were bombs? Mm. You had to run down into a shelter. Then what would happen? We would have to sit there and wait for the bombings to stop. Then we'd wait for the anti-raid to leave the house. We'd have to run into the shelter. All the children would have to go underground. Mm. My grandfather made them benches. You know, trying to un- then the journey to Australia on the ship. Mm. Her fear of that, or what it, ex- what it, the experience for her of the ship. So all those things were what I think Julian. Knowing that connection, because I'd obviously talked to him about that, about my grandmother, and he reminded me that years and years before he actually had approached me with the idea of one day putting a play, making a play about Malta and my experiences with Malta. I didn't remember that. But, um, I mean, it's unbelievable that Mm. we did this thing. Mm. Yeah. One of the most moving sections of the play for me, uh, which might surprise you, is is a scene called The Mythical Family. Oh. 
where you go through all the various members, people in your family, name them, talk about how they're all connected, go through this sort of genealogy. It 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 spins off into sort of fun facts about, you know, how many went to the funeral, how many were gay, how many used drugs. Did making this play help you make sense of your place in your family? Absolutely. One of the things Julian said when Hilary Bell was engaged, he said to Hilary, it all, the play always needs to be in Paul's voice, in my voice. It cannot be theatricalized, and Paul can't go into the cabaret realm or the character realm or the theatrical realm unless he was playing Clary the bingo caller or Angela. There always has to be authenticity and in the postcards primarily. So that was a strict kind of idea of Julian's to maintain this voice and personal aspect of of what it is. And the timing of the play in your life? Well, it came at a very interesting point in my life because post-Angela's death, my connection to my family ended. I won't go into it. Mm. But... It was a transitional. The timing of the play... Yeah. ..couldn't have come at a... In a way, healing and also painful. Painful reality, painful truth. So when I was going through all the mythical family, every night that was you know, difficult, because also I changed the names. The only names I kept were the dead, were those who had passed. Mm. The ones who were living, I did not say their names. I didn't want to say their names. Mm. But because what happened after Angela's death was I thought I was a big part of the family before she died. I was always involved because of my connection to her. See, my older brother, when he married at 19, pretty much left the family in a way. Whereas I was adamant that I would never leave Angela under any circumstance. I don't care if they said, here's our Broadway show. If it meant I was not going to be with my grandmother or I could see my grandmother, I couldn't do it. That is a big part of why I never left Australia as a freak cabaret performer when everyone's saying, oh, you shouldn't be here, you should be in Berlin or you should go to New York. Because of my grandmother, I wasn't going anywhere. So I was very involved with my family. I was the archivist of my family. I archived the photographs. I knew the dates. People, most of my family, never knew the date they left, year they left Malta. My grandmother didn't even know her age. So she didn't know the year she was born. She didn't know the, her date, her birth. She knew the year she was born. She knew her age, sorry, but she didn't know her birth date. And I had to find a document buried in a tin from, you know, in this fancy writing from Malta 
And I said, Nan, you were born on the 3rd of January, 1918. She made up July and she didn't really know, but and I collected all the photographs, I protected the photographs, I preserved the photographs. And I think Julian also drew on that when he made the play, which is why there was a great deal of the imagery and also all the family members, the cousins, how many, when did they get married, mm. you know, because I was obsessed with that as well. As well as Malta, I was also obsessed with my family. Mm. I was always I always wanted to know who was when and second cousin and which is the sister and and I also think I got that from my great grandmother because she would always talk about that to me and she would bring out the photographs and sit me down. It was my favourite thing with my yaya, looking at her photos of Greece and Egypt. She had photographs of her own mother herself as a child, whereas Angela, because of the poverty, there was no there was no photographs of anyone. The first photograph of my grandmother is when she'd already had five children. There was no wedding photo. There was a photograph of her father. That's because of the pop because I always say, Matt Nan, why haven't you got photographs? Oh Paul, we were couldn't afford a photo we couldn't afford photographs. Didn't have money for that. But anyway, I collected them and I looked after them and I would put them together and I'd take them to Angela and remind her. I always loved to show her the photographs and remind her and I'd find and I'd also get photographs from other family members and develop them and, and make copies and show Angela. I always wanted to nurture that in her, her place, her country and her family. And she was so very proud not only of my very close connection to my family and to Malta, I learned her language so I could speak Maltese. And every time I went to Malta, people did not understand. They'd always say to me, you're an outsider. When I speak to them, I go, yes, I'm from Australia. But wait a minute, you... You speak Maltese. And then I'd have to tell the story. My grandmother, and mm. I'd have to go through all go that. Go into it, yeah. As we draw to a close, uh, let's let's go back to Angela for a moment. There's a moment in the play where you ever so generously share your final moments with her. And <laughs> I... You know, I was so moved when I reread it, read those moments, because you and I have also talked about, you know, my relationship with Maya, yeah. and to the word, your description is exactly my experience, holding the right hand and uh, and being with her when she passes. But you, you say this. Mm. I was with her when she passed away. I was next to her holding her right arm. I was the first to notice her breathing had changed. After I got back from New York, because you had come back and you had to go back to perform, I went alone to the grave and it was very difficult. I just couldn't fathom she was in there. I just couldn't believe it. I feel her so strongly. I see her. I hear her, her voice. I think about her a lot because for me she was the centre, the rock. 
no matter what was going on in my life, if I just stood with my grandmother, just stood next to her, I felt instantly, instant safety. Mm. Yeah. Your whole world changed. It's never been the same. Well, what a beautiful way to honour her with this play. Paul Capsis, thank you so much for having a chat. Thank you, Dino. Thank you for listening to Staging the Nation. On our next episode, we speak with the wonderful Donna Rabella and chat about her play, Jump for Jordan. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to our podcast. And for more information about the series, please visit the National Theatre of Parramatta website. I'm Dino Dimitriadis. See you next time. Staging the Nation is a production of Riverside's National Theatre of Parramatta. Produced and recorded at Riverside Theatres, Parramatta. Executive producer, Joanne Key. Producer and technical director, Daniel Holsworth. Composition, Mealy Hay. Associate producer, Kara Woods. Host, Dino Dimitriadis. And this week's guest was Paul Katsis. Thank you to the Australia Council's Resilience Fund and also City of Parramatta, Create New South Wales and Riverside Theatres. And of course, thank you to you all for listening. Thank you.